The authority gap is a measure of how much more seriously we take men than we take women. So, for instance, we tend to assume that a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for a woman, it's all too often the other way around. And as a result, women tend to be underestimated more, they tend to be interrupted more, talked over more, they have to prove their competence more, they often have their expertise challenged more, and we often feel uncomfortable when they're in positions of authority. And why do we feel uncomfortable? Well, this is really what's at the base of the book. Because we have these sneaky little old-fashioned traditional stereotypes lurking somewhere in the furthest recesses of our brain, we tend to associate women with being warm and kind and gentle and unassuming and nurturing and unself-promoting and unassertive. And it's not just that we associate women with those character traits, but we actually want them to be like that. So these are prescriptive stereotypes as well as descriptive ones. And so when a woman starts to behave in a way that she has to in order to be taken seriously by being confident and assertive and possibly being in charge or showing leadership, we often recoil from her and it makes us feel uncomfortable because she's going so much against stereotype because what she's displaying instead are the so-called traditional masculine character traits of being confident and assertive and in charge. And so we often find ourselves disliking her and using adjectives about her such as, oh, she's quite abrasive or strident or aggressive or overbearing, bossy, ball-breaking, bitchy, stern, controlling. And these are adjectives we never use of men in the same position. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Before we start, just a quick announcement to let you know that my company, Equality Forward, in partnership with RPC and with support from Spotify, Coca-Cola Europe Pacific Partners, The Economist Group and the Wealthy Her Women's Network will be hosting Reimagine, a one-day virtual global summit showcasing new and ambitious business strategies for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Reimagine will highlight the central role of businesses in achieving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and showcase the latest innovations, ideas and approaches for sustainable development now and in the future. Reimagine includes six themed hours covering equality, sustainability, inclusive innovation and design, financial empowerment, belonging, well-being and community, as well as developing the next generation of leaders. The event features world-renowned innovation and design experts, business leaders, entrepreneurs, economists, thought leaders, inclusion specialists, financial and technology experts, social change activists, and next-generation leaders who will all share tools, knowledge, and corporate actions to accelerate progress towards a more sustainable world. Reimagine is being held in support of the United Nations Girl Up campaign, And if you'd like to attend this virtual event, then please register today at www.reimagineglobalsummit.com. Now let's get started with today's episode. 
As many of you know, in my book, The Fix, I share the numerous barriers that women encounter throughout their careers because workplaces value men and masculinity more than women and femininity. From a young age, we're taught what the appropriate behavior is for boys and girls. And through repeated exposure over the years, we come to know how men and women are meant to behave. These beliefs are then used to make judgments about women at work. When women succeed in traditionally male-dominated roles, they defy the expectations that society has for women, and they're punished for it. One study found that when women had teams with only male employees or teams with a mix of male and female employees, their status as a woman leader activates gender stereotyping, which negatively impacts how they're perceived as leaders. These penalties can include things like social rejection, personal affronts, reduced rewards, and limited career progression. When research participants were told that a woman was successful without providing any further information, they assumed that this woman was selfish, deceitful, manipulative, and cold. Women who do not conform to the feminine stereotype are more likely to be sexually harassed, one study even found that while 35% of all women experience sexual harassment at work, this issue disproportionately impacts women leaders and lesbian women. This is backlash. Women don't have to do anything to create these negative outcomes. Simply being successful and occupying a role normally held by men will trigger social penalties. This is the backlash that women face for defying gender roles by simply being leaders. Successful women often disregard gender roles, which makes people uncomfortable. For female leaders, managing this is critical. Having people support you determines how well you can build relationships and influence people. In other words, how well you can lead. Leading through backlash can be an incredibly difficult thing to do. It takes a toll on women's self-esteem and relationships. Backlash results in people disliking successful women and preferring male leaders. On today's episode, we're going to unpack how inequality at work also creates backlash when it comes to authority. Joining us on the show is Mary Ann Sygart, who will talk about her new book, The Authority Gap, and how to address and counteract systemic sexism in ways that benefit all of us. Because society doesn't associate women with power, oftentimes employees don't either, which is why it's acceptable in many environments to push back on women leaders and question their legitimacy. Not only does this limit women's ability to lead, but it also negatively affects their mental health, increasing stress levels and anxiety. Fix the Woman solutions encourage women leaders to try to be more communal and engage in stereotypical feminine behaviours to counteract this. While this may help make women leaders more palatable, it's an incredibly misogynistic fix. We're basically asking women to make everyone feel better about their success. Smile more, speak softer, dress better, and do anything you can to put others at ease with your authority. And simply engaging in the same behaviours as men at work will not ensure that women are treated in the same way as men because of gender stereotypes. For women to lead, they need to influence without the likability or authority that's automatically afforded to men, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, as Marianne explains. The authority gap is a measure of how much more seriously we take men than we take women. So, for instance, we tend to assume that a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for a woman, 
it's all too often the other way around. And as a result, women tend to be underestimated more. They tend to be interrupted more, talked over more. They have to prove their competence more. They often have their expertise challenged more. And we often feel uncomfortable when they're in positions of authority. And why do we feel uncomfortable? Well, this is really what's at the base of the book. Because we have these sneaky little old-fashioned traditional stereotypes lurking somewhere in the furthest recesses of our brain, we tend to associate women with being warm and kind and gentle and unassuming and nurturing and unself-promoting and unassertive. And it's not just that we associate women with those character traits, but we actually want them to be like that. So these are prescriptive stereotypes as well as descriptive ones. And so when a woman starts to behave in a way that she has to in order to be taken seriously by being confident and assertive and possibly being in charge or showing leadership, we often recoil from her and it makes us feel uncomfortable because she's going so much against stereotype because what she's displaying instead are the so-called traditional masculine character traits of being confident and assertive and in charge. And so we often find ourselves disliking her and using adjectives about her such as, oh, she's quite abrasive or strident or aggressive or overbearing, bossy, ball-breaking, bitchy, stern, controlling. And these are adjectives we never use of men in the same position. And you might say, well, maybe women should just grow a thicker skin if they want to be taken seriously and they have to act this way and they're disliked, well, to hell with it, you know, just put up with not being liked. But the trouble is that when it comes to hiring and promotion, for women, it's much more based on likability than it is for men, particularly when it's a man doing the hiring or the promoting. So men will much more likely be hired or promoted on their competence and their track record and their potential, whereas women are much more likely to be hired on likability. And actually, quite worryingly, sometimes them being extremely high achieving will actually be held against them. The hirers would almost rather have a woman who's moderately high achieving, but very likable, than someone who's extremely high achieving and can therefore almost become automatically dislikable, particularly if it's a man doing the hiring and he feels a bit threatened. So women are in this real double bind. If they're not confident enough, they're not going to be respected. They're not going to be taken seriously. But if they are confident enough, they're often going to be disliked. And it's terribly hard for women to navigate this very narrow path between the two. And what the research studies show, I've looked at a lot of research studies in this book, and what the research shows is that the only way to navigate that path successfully is to add oodles of warmth to your competence and your confidence. So as a woman, you have to smile a lot, you have to use a lot of humour, you have to be very wary of the egos around you, you have to be very emotionally intelligent in order to be allowed to be taken seriously without being disliked. All too often, the greatest challenge women encounter with barriers like the authority gap at work is the denial of their experience. Workplaces gaslight women by claiming that the organization is a meritocracy. All the while, women leaders have an entirely different lived experience. If you're at the wrong end of the authority gap, 
it's terribly hard to prove that it's your gender that is making this difference. So suppose you and a male colleague who are on the same level at work are both up for promotion and he gets it and you don't. You're automatically going to think, oh, well, maybe he's just better than me. So how do you control for the only variable that matters in this case, which is gender? Because, of course, he may be more able than you or he may be more competent than you. And the way to do this is to look at the experience of trans people, particularly trans men. So I looked particularly at two middle-aged Stanford professors who transitioned at the same time by coincidence in opposite directions. Ben Barris was, sadly died recently, but Ben Barris was a neuroscientist. And after he transitioned, he wrote, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. And he said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he used to put it, is taken more seriously now that I'm living as a man. And a faculty member who didn't know his history was overheard saying at, one, at the back of one of his seminars, Ben Barris gave such a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's. His sister, of course, being him. And at the same time, Joan Roughgarden was transitioning to living as a woman. She's an evolutionary biologist. And she had had a great time living as a man. She said, I was just always presumed to be competent unless I proved otherwise. Everything I said was listened to. Her pay was in the top 10% of her cohort. She had a seat on the university Senate committee. Once she transitioned to living as a woman, all that started to fall away. Her pay fell in real terms compared with that of her colleagues. She lost her seat on the Senate committee. She found it much harder to get grants for her work. But what really struck her was how both her work and she personally were attacked so viciously by some of her colleagues and rivals. So people would say things to her like, well, you clearly haven't read the literature or you don't understand the statistics. And she thought, this never happened to me when I was living as a man. And to start with, she said, well, when this first happened, I thought, well, hey, if women are discriminated against and I'm now living as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against too. And then she said, well, the novelty of that has worn off, I can tell you. <laughs> so this may sound very anecdotal, but actually academic studies of trans people have found exactly the same phenomenon, particularly trans men saying that they are just accorded so much more respect and are allowed to get away with so much more once they start living as men. And so this seems to me fantastic proof of the existence of the authority gap because they notice it dramatically, how differently they're treated, even though they have the same personality, the same ability, the same intelligence, the same experience, the same body of work, and the only thing that's changed is their gender. And that's what's changed the way people treat them. Of course, it's not easy for a person of any gender to be successful at work, but neither is it equally difficult for all genders. Privilege isn't always the presence of benefits that others don't receive. Often privilege is the absence of barriers. For women from a young age, gender norms create social roles and expectations that limit young women's confidence and opportunity to lead, as Mary Ann explains. Men just don't have to prove their competence in the same way. And they can boast about their ability and people will believe them. Women aren't allowed to boast about their ability, by the way. If women self-promote, people really disapprove. And so if women are therefore modest and self-deprecating, people believe them, right? So you can have a modest self-deprecating woman up against a self-promoting man of similar ability. 
and they will believe both that she is less good than she is and that he is better than he is. So it's much easier as a man just to blag your way through life. And people just don't question you and your ability nearly as much as they do a woman. And the other thing is, if you're not having to put up with all these sort of small insults and slights, which women put up with the whole time, like making a point at a meeting and nobody takes the blindest bit of notice of it until a man says it and suddenly it's like the second coming, you know, or being interrupted, being talked over, being unnecessarily challenged. Of course, you're going to feel more confident, right? Because all these instances of authority gap behavior undermine women's confidence. So men are just going to naturally, in the course of their life, feel more confident about themselves. And the fact that they behave more confidently will make people respect them more and accord them more authority. But this goes back right to childhood, which I found very depressing. So I think one of the saddest pieces of research I uncovered was that if you ask parents to estimate their children's IQ, they will estimate their sons on average to be 115 which in itself is pretty funny because the average ought to come out at 100, but we always overestimate our children, I guess. And their daughters at only 107. Even though girls develop much faster than boys, have a bigger vocabulary at an early age, and do much better at school, university, and beyond. So boys are growing up implicitly believing that they are cleverer than girls, and vice versa. But for a boy, when you're talking about the benefits of the authority gap for men, right from boyhood, this gives them such an enormous leg up just to feel great about themselves. They also tend to get much more attention from their teachers in class. Boys are much more likely to be called on for answers. If they shout an answer out, the teacher will take it. Whereas if a girl shouts out an answer, she's much more likely to be told, put your hand up if you want to speak. So boys start to learn that they have an entitlement to conversational time and teacher attention. And girls have to put up with staying quiet, being well-behaved, not making a fuss. And so again, boys are being trained for this sort of confident manhood and girls, I think, are being silenced and kept down. While all women are likely to encounter the authority gap, these experiences are different for every woman. Individual differences related to gender orientation, sexual orientation, age, race, ethnicity, physical or mental ability and social class, to name just a few, will intersect to create new and compounded experiences of inequality. In industries or organisations where women start to predominate, their average pay falls relative to other industries, doesn't it, as well? For instance, in certain types of medicine, where women predominate, they tend to be paid less than in types of medicine where men predominate. So it's as if the status of that job falls as more women take it. More senior women are bizarrely more likely to be interrupted, particularly by more junior men, as if they're being kept in their place. So there was a great study of the US Supreme Court. You don't get more authoritative than that. And women make up a third of the Supreme Court justices but have to put up with two thirds of all interruptions, 96% of the time by men. And so these are mainly male advocates who are more junior to them, but they're still interrupting them. And this is also true of doctors and patients. So male patients are much more likely to interrupt female doctors than male doctors, for instance. And in terms of the backlash, I think being disliked is the main manifestation of this. I was successful pretty young. I was a senior editor at the Times in London and I wrote a column as well. And we have a satirical magazine called Private Eye in the UK, and they couldn't bear this. And they 
parodied me as Marianne Bighead week after week after week. And in fact, it, they stopped it when I stopped having a column. I was no more big-headed than my male colleagues, if anything less so, I would say. But the fact that I behaved as if I had as much right to be in the room as them, they couldn't bear. And when this book came out, Private Eye had another parody of Marianne Bighead. So, I mean, there's the backlash really encapsulated. It could be subtitled, Woman Know Your Place, I think. White women are much more likely than white men to say that they have to prove their competence, but black women even more so. And disabled women have a much more difficult time of it, probably the worst of all, actually. You know, all these intersections compound the problems of the authority gap, widen the authority gap. It's also true of class too. So if you're, if you're working class, in Britain in particular, people can tell instantly by your accent pretty much where you've come from. And it's much harder to be taken seriously if your accent is perceived to be working class and if it's perceived to be middle class. Tackling the authority gap starts with seeing it and becoming aware of how we're perpetuating it at work. Women leaders are exceptional. They survive their workplace by developing an ability to interact, speak up, disagree, and engage with men, women, and all individuals in a way that limits negative reactions based on gender stereotypes. Imagine all the things women leaders could do if these difficulties didn't exist. It's like breaking a habit. It's a hard thing to do. It's like learning not to bite your nails or learning not to slump at your desk. But the more you try, the easier you find it to notice. So notice if when you are walking up to a man and a woman standing together, you automatically address the man first. Notice if you're interrupting women more than men, or if you're listening less attentively to them at meetings. Notice if the adjectives that I talked about earlier, like abrasive or strident or aggressive, immediately come into mind when you're thinking about a woman in authority. And then ask yourself, oh, I wonder if that's actually telling me more about me than about her. So for instance, when Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2016, so many people said she was unlikable. Okay? It was because she was going against these stereotypes. And they would say, oh, of course, very happy to vote for a woman, but just not that woman, because I don't like her. So then we had almost enough for a basketball team of women running for the Democratic nomination last time round. And how odd it was that when voters were asked, would you vote for a woman? They'd say, oh, yes, of course, but just not those women, all of them. And, you know, a lot of people in polls said that they found these female candidates unlikable. So what are the chances that all those women were actually unlikable? Is it not perhaps that we just don't like the idea of power-seeking women? And you have to seek power, of course, in order to be elected. To change the way that employees often behave towards women leaders, we need to change workplace cultures. This is something that everyone can play a part in by supporting women to lead rather than undermining their leadership style for being different. It also means challenging gender stereotypical thinking. Statements like, oh, women bosses are difficult to work with and male leaders are less emotional, not only undermine women in general, but they're particularly undermining for women who are trying to lead in ways that differ from the stereotypical male norm. Individuals in executive positions have a particularly important role to play in supporting women leaders. A 2016 study entitled Leading at the Top, Understanding Women's Challenges Above the Glass Ceiling, which was published in the Leadership Quarterly, highlights the important role that men can play in supporting women leaders. 
You can take practical daily steps like verbally endorsing, championing, advocating and encouraging them. One participant in this study reported receiving significant backlash to her leadership appointment. However, her boss took a stand and threatened to resign if she didn't receive the support needed to lead. Supporting women leaders in ways like this is an intentional and powerful way for male leaders to spend their privilege. Thank you for tuning in to our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.